0: Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. And then turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, reading verses 14 through 24. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it.
1: Good morning, welcome again to worship on this Pentecost Sunday for this year. Look forward to exploring thoughts about God through the work of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures today with you. I will be directing my thoughts from verse 23 of chapter two of Acts that says this, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And we take time this week To celebrate Pentecost. We celebrate Pentecost because of the necessity and the reality of the Spirit breathing the life of God into us. Pentecost began a Spirit-inspired obsession with God that began 2,000 years ago, and that Spirit given obsession with God is what sustains every single Christian life. It is what sustains every Christian church and gives it its identity and its integrity. And so it leads to one of the most significant questions that we can ask yourselves and I will ask you this morning on this Pentecost Sunday as we celebrate the work of the Spirit in our lives. Are you filled with the Spirit? Do you know the life that makes us alive to God? I don't ask if you know lots about God, but I ask, do you live to God? Do you live in the presence of God? Do you know something of what Ezekiel saw to prophesy to those bones, and then the bones were given sinew, and the sinews were given flesh, and then the flesh had breath breathed into it to come to life? Do you know something of that work of the Spirit in you to be brought into the presence of God and to live there? The realities of God are true, regardless of our experience of them. God's independence of our experience is something that is very, very dear to me. But God's independence of us is like this, that God is not dependent upon us seeing him as he is in order for him to be as he is. He's not dependent upon us to see him as he is for him to be as he is. I've never been to Paris, but I assume that Paris is as it is, even though I've never seen it. Paris doesn't depend upon me to see it as it is for Paris to be what it is. But if I go there, then I'll see what it is. And the spirit is what takes us there, not to Paris, but to God, to be alive to God. And that is what Pentecost is all about. It marks the life the awakening to be brought to God Do you think about God do you have thoughts about God do you know the danger and the possibility for us to have thoughts only about ourselves in God's name that was what Pharisaism was all about. It was, Pharisaism was a, a spiritual deadness. You think, well, the Pharisees were obsessed with God. No, they weren't obsessed with God at all. They were obsessed with themselves in God's name. They had great regard for God's law, but they had very few thoughts about the God that actually gave them that law. As a young man, what attracted me to Christianity, and I remember this very, very clearly, I remember thinking it through very, very carefully, Christian faith and and Christianity. What attracted me to Christianity, I remember very, very precisely, was was not the church. It was not the church and its worship. It It was not the people. It was God that attracted me to Christianity. And I remain a Christian to this day for exactly the same reason. Not because I'm obsessed with the church or not because I'm obsessed with the, with the people of God, but because I'm obsessed with God himself. And being obsessed with God, I love the church and I love the people of God. But it's because of being alive to God. And I believe that is the strength of the church, what must be the strength of the church, and what makes our Christian community desirable. Is God it's not when we try to design a worship that is attractive it's not when we obsess with ourselves and and think uh, overly about ourselves how we live how we think what we do what will people see what will people think but what makes the people of God attractive is when we worship and live as people who are obsessed with God not obsessed with ourselves in God's name but obsessed with God. And it is possible to be obsessed with ourself in, in God's name. That's what religion is, is all about. It has those dangers. I've been to marriage seminars where all they talked about was marriage. I've been to discipleship events where all they talked about was discipleship. I've been to leadership events where all they talked about was leadership. But if those things are Christian things, then what makes two people able to live in intimacy with one another is their obsession with God and discipleship what gives people the capacity to find their way in the things of God is an obsession with God himself for people who serve in, in leadership what gives them the integrity and the wisdom and the ability to lead God's people is a uniting together in an obsession with God and it's something that must be very explicit and very intentional And I believe the words that I'm directing us today, this morning, are the intention of Pentecost, where Peter declares something so great about God that is worthy of our obsession. The very first words of Peter's declaration of Pentecost, I find this very, very interesting. After Peter quotes from the book of Joel, what what do you think Peter has to say, first of all? These are the very first words of Peter's declaration of Pentecost. And they are words that compel this obsession with God's greatness. After quoting the prophet Joel, and in that prophecy, it describes how there will be prophecy and there will be visions. Your young men will see visions and they'll have dreams. And then Peter prophetically declares a vision. He, He shows a dream of God that is unimaginably great. Look at these words again from verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It is astounding. He, Peter declares that, that something so wicked that has a capacity to crucify our Lord has been used and overruled to accomplish the very purposes and will of God. Fulfills what Proverbs 19, 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Also, Proverbs 21:30 that says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail. Against the Lord, and these certainly were activities that were trying to avail against the Lord. Do you have activities where you think in your own life, circumstances, and events that seem to avail against the will of the Lord? There is something fundamental and necessary in this vision of God that Peter declares that becomes a kind of gateway understanding. It's the first thing that Peter says doesn't say, this is what I want you to know. I want you to know that God loves you. doesn't say, I want you to know that you can find the kindness of God here. This is the first thing that, that Peter declares, and it becomes a kind of, of gateway understanding to a greatness of God that opens the doors to all of the things that the gospel has for us. This is the main point that I'd like to get across to you this morning on this Pentecost Sunday. Is that Peter's first words at Pentecost are a a declaration of a, a root greatness, a root greatness, a root greatness in God that requires a submissive faith, a humble faith that is submissive to God for all of our worship and our unity. And we need to worship and we need to be unified. Let me define a couple of the terms that are in that. First of all, a root greatness. What I mean by a root greatness, you know what a root is? Well, this is a root greatness, something that that leads to all other things. A root greatness is an incomprehensible attribute belonging to God only that makes it possible for us to experience the greatness of his love, his mercy, his kindness, and his goodness. In the death of Christ, God proclaims to us so much of the greatness of his love and mercy but that would not be possible for us to even to know anything about if it weren't for this greatness this root greatness this kind of greatness that so overruled in the crucifixion so as to accomplish his purposes and his plan that he overruled the hands of wicked men to make it the fulfillment of his own definite plan and will. See, we would know nothing of the love of God on the cross, or of the kindness of God, or the mercy and the grace of God in the cross if it weren't for the root greatness of God that could take the hands of wicked men and rule over them in such a way to accomplish his purpose at the cross. And it's, it's a tremendous greatness. And this is why I also call it an incomprehensible greatness. Greatness, an unfathomable root greatness you see we can we can identify love in people we, we, we can look at people and say well I know what love looks like and then imagine what love looks like in God we we know kindness we know mercy we know goodness in all of the different ways that we interact with people often but we know nothing of this kind of greatness in anybody else there's no example, there's, there's no comparable for us to look at anybody else as we can see love and goodness and kindness in them. We can't see anything of them ruling over evil in such a powerful and great way. It is unfathomable to us. And that is why it is a, a gateway truth. It is a gateway truth for us to enter into experience and proclaim all of, or receive all of the greatness. Of God's love and his kindness and his mercy and what a paradox it would be for us to revel in all that the cross brings to us in God's greatness and yet scoff at the greatness that makes it all possible jeremiah says there is none like you O lord you are great and great is your name in might nahum don't try to find it it's it's in the bible i guarantee it don't try to find it right now. Nahum 1 3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. In the whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. The whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are Old Testament prophetic ways of describing something of the incomprehensibleness, the unfathomableness of God's greatness. That is a root greatness that we possess with a submissive faith. I believe this text and what Peter declares at Pentecost by the power and evidence of the spirit in us leads to a humility in the life of the Christian, a a humbleness before God, a faith that I would describe as submissive, not assertive in God's presence, but submissive in God's presence. And this is what I mean by a submissive faith, a gracious, So gracious and spirit-enabled awakening to humbly believe and accept God's greatness in a way that surpasses our understanding. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with a God who isn't within your realm of of comprehension and understanding? I, I say this over and over again. I'll say it again. How small God would be if I could understand him. It forces me over and over again to take that pet God out of my pocket, that God that I take out and pat on the head, that God that I can understand, that God that I don't allow to exceed my creaturely comprehension and throw it away. It's useless to me. It's not a God at all. Earlier we read from the book of Job, Chapter 42, where Job says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then Job says this. He says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What was Job repenting of? He was repenting of the attempt to put the creator into creature category. And Peter is declaring something about the crucifixion of Christ. A greatness in God over evil that is not offered up for us to dissect and to debate, but rather to be believed and submitted to. See, Pentecost doesn't promise us the understanding of God. It promises us the belief in God, the capacity to believe even when we don't understand. I found these words helpful. They're from a 17th century confession of faith called the Belgic Confession. And it speaks of this submissive faith. It says, what God does, surpassing our understanding, we will not curiously inquire into further than our capacity will admit of, but with the greatest humility and reverence, adore the righteous judgments of God. And I think that submissive faith to a root greatness is essential for these two things. A submissive faith to a root greatness is vital and necessary for our spirit-filled worship and spirit-filled unity. Let me say something briefly on the significance of this submitting faith to this greatness of God for our worship. We know, at least I I hope you would agree with this, that, that nothing that God has created, nothing in the realm of all that God has made in creation is worthy of worship. I hope you'd agree with that. There's nothing that God has made that we should bow down to, nothing that is worthy of worship. Worship then is by definition the adoration of something that is not creaturely. And this is definitely what Peter declares at Pentecost. Something that is in the realm of God alone. And this is what spirit-filled worship is. Spirit-filled worship is our posture. A posture of humble submission to and adoration of the divine. To worship God as God. If you would approach the cross of Christ, and of course we do, and I hope you do, approach the cross of Christ to find all the greatness of his love, all the greatness of his kindness, all the greatness of his mercy. Know that you are also approaching God in this unspeakable greatness that has used that cross to accomplish his purposes, to display all of his love, to display all of his kindness. And so worship must have that component of submitting to God in all of that greatness. It is a posture before God that comes from asking the question, well, who crucified Jesus? Was it the work of wicked hands or was it the work of God? Who crucified Jesus? And to be brought alive in God, to live before God, to be brought to life by the Spirit, Peter shows that the answer to that question of who killed Jesus isn't resolved in a way that answers the demands of reason. Rather, it's answered in a way that is dissolved in unfathomable greatness. The cross teaches us how to worship, even in the presence of wicked hands. It teaches us how to worship in all of the suffering, in all of the wickedness that there is in this world, in all the perplexities of our world. And all of us have questions in our lives of, well, whose hand does it work here? Who's doing this? Is it, is it people? Is, is, it, is it awful, evil people? Is it the devil? Is it God? We live in a day right now where people are asking, well, who started this virus? Was it humans or was it God? Who destroyed Job's family? It was one of, the great, one of the great go-to stories in all of the scriptures. Who destroyed all of Job's flocks? Who, who killed his family? Was it God or, or was it the devil? And Job is a book that people often go to to learn how to suffer. And what you'll find, though, if you go to the book of Job to learn how to suffer, which is fine, you can go to the book to learn book of Job to learn how to suffer but what you will actually learn there is not how to suffer you will learn there how to worship and if you only go there to learn how to suffer and not how to worship then it shows that we're really obsessed with ourselves in God's name we must get over ourselves and get to God and God displays to Job same thing that is displayed at the cross that God's root greatness that requires our submissive faith in order that we would worship him as he really and truly is. It also leads to our unity. What else do we have in common but such a faith and such a greatness at the foot of the cross? The subject of unity may make you groan somewhat of experiences that you've had, perhaps of divided churches and a longing that is in your heart to see the church, not only to worship in the Spirit, but to be unified in the Spirit. And it's a longing that I share. It's a groaning that I share. And I have learned this over the years that in my longing, in my groaning, I, I must groan in the Spirit and not in the flesh. My groanings in the flesh aren't helpful. My cynicism isn't helpful. My unengagement isn't helpful. And the groanings and the longings for unity. That our true mark of the Spirit is to engage with God's people and to look for and to lean into and worship God in this mighty greatness. But this is what what unity is. It is a Spirit-filled unity. Our Spirit-filled unity is our bond of like-mindedness. Like-mindedness and submission to God. See, there's only one Spirit. And that spirit only takes us to one God. And that is the basis for our unity. Sometimes when there's divisions in the church, it shows it's evidence that we are obsessed with ourselves in God's name. But the work of the spirit is to be united in our obsession with God and submit with a humble faith to a greatness that is incomprehensible and unmanageable to us to us. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians speaks of such a unity in the spirit. Where he says this in Ephesians 4, he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over us all. I'm going to close with these words from Romans chapter 11 because I think they articulate, in the words of the Apostle Paul, uh, a way that we do indeed unite in the Spirit and the unity of the Spirit to show us an unfathomable greatness in God, which is the love of the Father and the mercy of the Son shown to us in the life of the Spirit. And Paul articulates this, I believe which is something that we stand shoulder to shoulder with as brothers and sisters in Christ in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, about the greatness of God. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given as a gift to him that he might be... Repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious and almighty God, thank you for the gift of your spirit. And I pray that we would desire above all else to know all that you have for us in the giving of your spirit as the many tongues said in Jerusalem that was overheard in the many languages, said they were declaring the greatness of God in their own language. And I thank you for Peter, who makes it very, very plain, the sense of what those people were hearing, that you rule over all things, even wicked hands, in such a way to accomplish your definite plan according to your foreknowledge. Thank you for such greatness. I pray that it would be the substance of our worship. And I pray that it would be the basis for our unity. Have mercy upon us, I pray, for Jesus' sake.